be turning your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 27 through 36. Uh, we're keeping with our theme of growing in Christian maturity from 1 Samuel. So far, we've talked about how to walk with Jesus in heartache and loss, as well as in happiness and blessing. Last Sunday, we talked about how to wait patiently for Jesus to act in situations where we are powerless to act. This morning, we're going to talk about how to trust in Jesus's redemptive purposes for judgment. Or to put it another way, how to trust that Jesus practices justice that restores, uh, justice that can bring repentance and transformation and new life. Uh, God's people, you, me, most of the people in the Bible, uh, we struggle, deep, struggle deeply with the idea that when Jesus executes justice, he does so in order to bring about redemption. Uh, that's a hard idea for us to believe, but it's all over the Bible. Uh, when when talking about bringing the nations into Israel through faith in the Messiah, Isaiah says in chapter 19, verse 22, and the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing, and they will return to the Lord, and he will listen to their pleas for mercy, and he will heal them. In Job 5, verse 8, God is described as the one who wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. Jesus says, unless a grain of wheat falls in the ground and dies, it will not come to life and bear fruit. And of course, he said this about his own need to experience justice for us on the cross so that he could rise and bear the fruit of resurrection in our lives, right? So this is about Jesus's justice that brings restoration. But he also said this about us who are called to take up our cross to lose our lives for Christ's sake so that we can find it in Jesus, or as Paul will say in so many different ways, when we come to Jesus, we come and die. We die to our sins, to our guilt, to our old ways of life. And then through that death with Jesus, we are raised to new life with him, to life of righteousness and freedom and forgiveness, to the, to the very life of heaven. And I'm going over all of this because this idea that death and life meet redemptively in our lives through God's presence with us, the idea that when God brings justice, he can also bring redemption with him. The idea that the cross and the grave give way to the resurrection and eternal life. Like whichever way of talking about that you choose to use in the Bible has a lot of ways of talking about this. The idea that of judgment being a possible door that God will use to bring redemption to us that uh, death will lead to life, or justice being a way that Jesus can lead us to transformation and reconciliation. That is intrinsic. It is foundational, is basic to our life with God in a fallen world. Uh, but we struggle with it very deeply. We struggle to believe that Jesus uses death to bring resurrection life. Uh, we doubt strongly that his judgment ever has any relationship to his mercy. Now, that struggle takes a lot of different shapes. The one we're going to talk about today is a common one, both in the Bible and in the world around us, which is our failure to trust in God's restorative justice for people we love. Uh, we want to spare our friends, 
our children, our parents, our neighbors from uh, the consequences of their actions as much as we can. And generally that's correct, right? That's what we should do. That's what love does. Love uh, covers a multitude of sins. It does not keep a record of wrongs. It forgives and welcomes and, and all of that. But what if the people we are sparing from judgment are violent? What if others are being abused by them, uh, murdered by them, oppressed by them, exploited by them? What if the people we love are committing sins that we know that if they are exposed will result in them being jailed or socially outcast or might cause them to become poor and vulnerable, maybe even uh, homeless? Right? This struggle that wants to help others without exposing the ones that we love who are hurting those other people to justice and to loss, that is often why pastoral abuse, child abuse, spousal abuse is able to go on for as long as it does because we know that they are hurting other people, but we don't want the ones that we love to be hurt while we're helping the ones that they are hurting. And so the cycle of abuse perpetuates because of that struggle. Uh, this struggle to trust in God's redemptive purposes and judgment is at the heart of so many problems that the church faces today, and it's at the very center of Eli's struggle with his sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Uh, we're going to talk about this more, of course, but in our text this morning, God announces judgment on Eli and his house because Eli honored his sons more than God, with the result that his sons are abusing God's people, like we talked about last Sunday. And as we'll talk about, I think this is Jesus calling Eli out on the fruit of his failure to trust him with the future of his sons. And then I also want to talk about how I think this hard word of judgment is ultimately aimed at redemption. I think it's about the salvation of God's people, and I also think it's about the salvation, ultimately, of Eli's family. My goal in all of this is that we would gain some perspective, some wisdom, right, which maturity requires. You can't have maturity without wisdom. I want us to gain some insight into why it matters that we trust that Jesus carries both judgment and redemption with him so that we can either prevent situations like this from happening in our lives and in our congregation, or if we're in a situation where there is abuse, we can find the courage to act. Uh, not in hatred, but in hope, based on the character and ways of God. Uh, so that's a long introduction, but it's a short sermon. Uh, let's read 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 27 to 36, and then we'll reflect on this some more. 1 Samuel 27. We're picking up right where we left off last week. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me? by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. 
Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, but there shall never be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die as ordinary men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be assigned to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread, and shall say, Please put me in one of the priest's place, that I may eat a morsel of bread. Thus far the reading of what can only be God's own word. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to hear uh, this uh, difficult word, uh, we want it to bear fruit in our lives. We want to be able to believe it and trust it, to understand it, so that we can grow in our relationship with you and live out of faith in the way in which uh, you work in this world. And so, Father, we pray uh, that your spirit now would go forth with your word as it was read and as we meditate on it to give us ears to hear and minds to understand and hearts to believe. Now, Father, may the words of my mouth as your preacher and may the meditation of all our hearts as those called to hear and respond to your word. May it all now be pleasing in your sight. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, at the center of God's complaint against Eli and his house, and by the way, house roughly means family. So at the center of God's complaint against Eli and his family is verse 29. Why do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Uh, so the question that we need to ask ourselves is when did Eli honor his sons above the Lord and what does that look like? Uh, after all, we just saw last week uh, Eli, who remember verse 22, just back in the chapter, is very old. And therefore, he's physically weak, he's politically weak, he's socially weak. Eli had acted courageously and had rebuked his sons, and we saw even call them to repentance. So clearly, Eli wasn't honoring them above God at that particular point in his life. He risked violence, as we talked about, to call them out for not honoring God. And also, given the fact that Eli was very old, he was likely retired. Now, the Bible doesn't use that word, but in Leviticus, there are rules that govern the way a priest like Eli would transition from authority to a less physically demanding role of service by handing over those responsibilities and that authorities to younger, stronger men. So all that to say, I don't think here Jesus is calling Eli out for how he's acting now. I think he's calling Eli out for what he did in the past, which is now bearing the terrible fruit of abuse and violence that we saw last week. And I think that especially because of what honoring means in this context. So to honor someone most broadly means to give someone public respect. 
Uh, and in terms of the priesthood, it means to give someone the privilege of serving in God's house and representing Jesus to the people and the people to Jesus. So in ancient Israel, the way the priesthood normally worked was that sons would learn the role of the priest from their father, and they would then uh, enter into service with their father in less important roles, and then they would eventually take over from their father when, like Eli, they become too old for the physically demanding work that sacrifice involved. And we don't often think about this, but this is why God builds us into the priesthood. All day, you're carrying dead animals, dead cows, dead sheep, dead goats, dead pigeons. To be cooked, you're removing the bones, you're bringing the food to the people who are sacrificing, you're serving them, you're cleaning up from them. This is a physically demanding job, uh, and you're doing it every day. Uh, and so when the dad reached an age where he simply couldn't do it anymore, his sons would take over, and then the sons would enter that cycle, and then their sons would replace him. Now, the priesthood was made up uh, the tribe of Levi, and it's important to know that when God brought Israel into the promised land, he did not give the tribe of Levi any land to farm. No, instead, their, their wealth their homes, their food, their money, their clothing was all to be provided by the tithes and offerings of God's people. Their inheritance was the Lord and his people. And what they received in terms of their physical needs came through the temple sacrifices. And Jesus names this arrangement in Leviticus and in Numbers, I also think in Deuteronomy, as an honor. Jesus publicly respects Levi's tribe by giving them the blessing of serving his people. And he publicly respects every member of the tribe of Levi by providing for them through his people with his own offerings. Jesus says to Levi, you get to eat from my table. You get some of my offerings. That's how I'm providing for you because I am honoring you. I'm setting you up in this important position in the life of my people. And then also, the tribe of Israel gets to honor the rest of Israel by showing them the public blessings of the gospel. Uh, they get to have uh, the, the great privilege of telling people, Jesus loves you. Jesus forgives you. Jesus is with you. Jesus hears you like we saw Eli do to Hannah at the very beginning of Samuel. So take all of that now. Okay, here's all that background. Take it all. Take a step back and ask yourselves, do people like Hophni and Phinehas we saw last week are violent men who surround themselves with violent men who use their power to prey on women, right? That's back in verse 22 as well. Are these the kind of people you don't see coming? Uh, I had no idea that violent Bob would be so violent. Uh, who would have thought the guy who stabs cats and cusses out his mom would be violent, angry, and abusive? Like, no, of course not. Just like we saw last week back in verse 12, Hophni and Phinehas, God describes as worthless men who did not know the Lord. And like we talked about, that means that they had devoted their life to manipulation, to violence, to cruelty, to greed, and to encouraging others to do this. And they did it for a long time. So why were they allowed to become priests? Or even if Eli hadn't seen them coming, why did he let them stay priests after it was revealed that this happened earlier on in his life? I think it's because Eli, well, I don't think it is. It's because Eli put them in that position. They became priests because Eli put them there. Eli honored his sons above God 
by putting his God-dishonoring sons into a position that they never should have been in. Why did he do that? Well, like, it's not because God's law forced him to. Right? God's law is designed to protect people from sin. Right? It's designed to give freedom and to give safety and to give forgiveness. The law is not written in such a way where God's like, well, your sons are terrible, but like, you kind of have to put them in power because that's how I wrote the law. That's not it at all. There's plenty of ways that Eli could have said, you know what, guys, like, you don't get to take this role. This role is not for you. Was it because of the culture that he did it? I mean, obviously there would have been pressure from the tradition and culture, but no. No, I think it's because at this point in his life, whenever this was, Eli was spiritually immature, at least in this area. I think he was afraid of what would happen if his sons didn't get that particular role. How would they eat? They don't have any land to farm. How would they pay for food? They don't have any money. Banks weren't invented until the Renaissance, so there's no bank to go withdraw from. You have to get the money you earn. Without money from ties, how do they get money? Where would they live? The houses are donated by the people. They can't stay in the temple if they're not priests. And no one's going to put them up in their house if they're not priests. So what would they have to do? Well, they'd have to hire themselves out. But would they do that? What if they just became violent thieves? But then they could get killed. And what about their exposure to the gospel? How would they repent if they aren't near the redemptive words and works of Jesus. Does this line of reasoning sound familiar to any of you personally or through your relationships with other people who've had to wrestle through what to do with family members who are violent and abusive and you're trying to figure out what to do with them? I don't want to cast them out on the street, but I can't let them stay here. You see, when God calls Eli out in his house for fattening themselves on the choicest part of every offering, I think he's hitting directly at this idea at food, clothing, money, and importance, all the things that came to their family through the priesthood, all the things that Eli's sons would not have if he refused them the honor of putting them into the priesthood and giving them this position of authority. See, I think Eli acted just like a father of a child who is abusing uh, his sons and daughters, but who's afraid to act because if he saves his grandchildren, he condemns his child's suffering. Or like a, a board of elders who don't save a congregation from an oppressive pastor, because if they do, the pastor who they love, or the family, his family that they love, or the reputation of the ministry, which might be important, it will all suffer if we do those things. Uh, maybe if we cover it up, eventually it'll just sort of work itself out. Right? That way of thinking, my friends, is rooted in many things, but one of the things it's rooted in is a belief that judgment, suffering, and justice is only and ever destructive. It's rooted in a belief that Jesus really only brings death through death, not life from death. That Jesus' resurrection power doesn't come through the grave and open it up into new things. It comes from a belief that there is no ark of grace to carry anyone through the floods of judgment. Now, this is not the way the Lord wants it to be. Jesus does not want his people to suffer from abuse or oppression. He doesn't want his people to suffer from being abusers either. No, Jesus' desire is to set the captives free. It's to break down the walls of hostility and to bring life out of death. And so Jesus acts in our passage. Jesus responds by proclaiming a word of judgment that will, as I'm hoping to show in a second, 
lead ultimately to salvation. But before we look at that judgment, I want to remind you of something important about prophetic words that we talked about a couple years ago when we were looking at Jeremiah. Because it's going to help us understand the reason why God can shift his relationship to Eli and his family for their good and for the good of his people. And also, because it will really help us understand the purpose of this strongly worded judgment. That is, it's going to help us start thinking about the way that God's judgment can serve redemptive purposes. So in Jeremiah 18, verses 7 through 10, God says this. I'm just going to read it for you. Jeremiah 18, 7 through 10. God says, if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I had intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I intended to do it. Uh, so without re-preaching Jeremiah 18, uh, the point here is that Jesus is a response-seeking God. Jesus responds to our responses to his actions. If we use his grace and blessing as a license for sin and evil, then God will take away some of those blessings for our good. I will relent of the good I intended to do it. And if God proclaims judgment and we repent, he will relent of that judgment and bring blessing for our good. See, what we see Jesus doing to Eli is exactly this. He says in verse 30, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me, I will honor and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. See, the Lord's response to Eli's honoring his sons above him, which put men that he knew to be wicked and violent in positions of power, where they would hurt God's people and cause the name of the Lord to be thought of as empty and meaningless, the result of that is now Eli and his family have lost their position in the priesthood. Now, I want to be very clear about what Jesus is taking away here. Uh, in this judgment, Jesus is not taking away the gospel. He's not taking away heaven. He's not taking away the resurrection. Jesus is not saying to Eli, because you did this for your sons, you are going to hell. Sorry, grace doesn't cover you here. Uh, you and all your household are doomed for eternal judgment. Like, that is not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not removing Eli from his people. He's not removing his family from the church. What he is doing is removing Eli and his family from a role within his people. And I want to say this because when, whenever we see judgment in the Old Testament, I think we automatically think about salvation and eternal life and eternal death. But we most of the time should not be thinking in those cases. And in this case, that is not the case for Eli and his family, except maybe for Hophni and Phinehas. Uh, for them, it probably is the case. I mean, after all, back in verse 25, we read that it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Um, but that death, I should say, point out, wasn't just a judgment against Hophni and Phinehas. It was also a means to stop evil from spreading. And uh, that leads us to our final point. 
which is that through this judgment, the Lord saves his people. Just two quick things here. First, I want you to see that this judgment on Eli's house is about saving God's people from abuse and oppression and violence. Uh, Eli honored his sons above God, and in doing so, he put wicked men in positions of authority. And given the kind of people Hophni and Phinehas were, and given the people they surrounded themselves with, if Jesus did not act to stop the abuse, it was going to be Israel's lot for a long time. Uh, do you really think that Hophni and Phinehas were going to train their sons to be kind and forgiving and that they would eventually allow these kind and forgiving sons to replace them? Uh, no, I mean, like, they're going to replace them with people who are going to steal dad's favorite cut of steak, who are going to skim the tops off of tithes and offerings. They're the kind of people who want this kind of corruption and violence to continue because that's how they maintain power. Eli had a chance to stop that cycle from starting, but he didn't because he didn't trust in the Lord's ability to work redemptively through suffering. He didn't trust that the Lord can and often does use times of suffering to bring repentance. So Jesus steps in and he saves his people. And in the image of Revelation, he removes the lampstand of Eli's family from the priesthood, right? He stops the cycle of abuse because he loves his people. And I think this is important for us to see. Jesus does, in fact, act in history to protect his people from violence and oppression and corruption. Uh, he does act to remove abusers from power. And if I can just say this, I can't help but wonder, with all the abuse scandals that have come to light over the last 20 and 30 years, it seems like every couple weeks there's a new one that comes out. Uh, I can't help but wonder if the Lord isn't acting right now to protect his children and the women in his congregation and his congregations as a whole from violence and from oppression, from corruption. I mean, praise God for his actions, right? Because in this judgment, God comes to help his people. God's justice here, God's judgment here is actually freeing his people up to live safely with him. And I think it's good for us to recognize that God's delivering actions aren't locked in the past. You know, thousands of years ago with Samuel, he's still acting now to deliver and free his people from corrupt and abusive people and leaders. But that's not the only salvation that I see here. So here's an example of that, that first part. There is an example of God's judgment being redemptive. It's saving his people. It's delivering from them. But that's not all. Uh, so keeping Jeremiah 18 in mind, when God says in verse 33, the only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die like ordinary men. And also when he says in verse 36, and everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him, that is the faithful priest God will raise up, shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. When God says these two things, I think you see something here that's actually very hopeful down the line. Uh, Eli's house had become rich through theft, right? They were greedy and they had sought special privileges here, Jesus' judgment is that they will be poor, they will grieve, and they will die like ordinary people. And what the fruit of that poverty, of that 
grief of that ordinariness, the fruit that that will produce, it will make them humble. They'll approach the priest and they'll ask to be readmitted to the priesthood so that they can eat at God's table with God's people. In other words, they're going to ask the priest for forgiveness and for a reinstatement of their position of service. They're going to ask God, a la Jeremiah 18, to relent of the disaster and store them, restore them. In other words, the suffering that Eli tried to spare his sons from has now been brought on to Eli's family. But instead of it being the source of sadness for God's people, it will ultimately become redemptive for them. It will be restorative. It will be the means God uses to bring them back in maturity to his people. And there's a, there's a lesson here for us, my friends. And that lesson is uh, we need to trust in the redemptive, restorative purposes of God, even in his acts of judgment. Uh, imagine if Eli had had the spiritual maturity at the time to do that. Like, what would have happened? Would Hophni and Phinehas have been saved? Maybe. I don't know. Uh, but would Eli's house have been spared? Absolutely. Right? Imagine if Eli had said, Hophni, Phinehas, I love you. But like, you can't be here. Well, Dad, what are we going to do? Where are we going to eat? Where are we going to live? I don't know. I'll help you figure it out. But you cannot be a priest. This is not the place for you. What if he had been willing to expose his sons to that kind of loss? And in love, offered to help them figure it out, but had said no more, no further, enough. What would have happened? I know it's a thought experiment you can't answer, but at the same time, certainly some disasters would have been averted, right? We need to trust that God can use even difficult things like the valley of the shadow of death, poverty, heartache, homelessness, as a way to bring his people to himself, just like the parable of the prodigal son, right? Just like the, the general in the Babylonian army, Naaman, who was full of leprosy and God brought him down to this incredible, humble, humble spot where he became a worshiper of Jesus because of God's judgment and justice and suffering because the road of humiliation for him led to the road of exaltation as he repented and found faith in Christ. I mean, you can just go through the Bible and find all sorts of stories about this. My friends, we need to see that when God acts in judgment, oftentimes he's bringing salvation with him. He's often bringing grief for, for sin, repentance, uh, humility, a trust that Jesus does indeed relent and bring life because he is the resurrection and the life. So if we're in a situation where we need to act to stop abuse. Um, beloved, let's prayerfully take the actions that we need to take. And if you don't know what actions to take, if you're in that situation and you don't know what to do, like come talk to me. And if I don't know what to do, like we will find someone who knows what to do. Uh, and together we'll believe that Jesus can use suffering, judgment, justice, heartache to bring restoration. Together we'll believe that Jesus brings life from death. And also, let's keep this in mind for ourselves so that, God willing, nothing like this kind of corruption, abuse, oppression ever happens here in grace. Amen? Let's pray together.
Father, please help us learn that um, even in judgment, you can work your salvation and mercy. Uh, Please help us to trust in your goodness and in your purposes so that we can have the courage to take uh, even difficult actions with hope in your unfailing love. And please, Father, for those who may be experiencing um, justice right now, please use it to lead them to humility, repentance, and restoration. And please allow us and empower us by your Holy Spirit to participate in that great gospel work through Jesus. Uh, And we pray this all in his name. Amen. Uh, Let's stand together and sing in response.